welcome back to Looking Outside. So I don't know about you, but I am seeing news about AI absolutely dominating my feed at the moment. And like with anything topical, it comes with a lot of confusion, a lot of potentially ambiguity. For the average common day person, maybe it's less on our minds, but certainly for those of us inside of that business context, looking at leveraging or amplifying our AI capabilities, it's very top of mind. So today I'm going to be speaking with somebody who will help us to get our heads around AI, what this means today, what it might mean for the future, and truly an honor to have an expert in this space joining us today. A huge welcome to the show to Usama Fayad. Hi, Usama. Hi, Joe. Thanks for uh, hosting me here. Uh, why don't we start with a, a little bit of an introduction into who you are? Okay, so I've been working in AI for uh, about 30 years, started out with uh, my PhD, where, you know, when I was working on that, I thought I'd like to be a student forever. Uh, but at some point I decided, hey, better wrap this up and uh, and and start working in, in the real world. And my, my PhD was on the topic of uh, machine learning within AI, learning decision trees and so forth. Uh, started my career at uh, NASA's Jet Propulsion Lab, applying these techniques to uh, scientific databases. You know, NASA would spend billions of dollars to collect the data set and then the ability of humans to analyze it was fairly limited. But then Microsoft came knocking and asked a question, which is, hey, if you can help these scientists who can afford to spend a whole life on a particular data set, think about what you could do in the corporate world. That was also a very interesting journey, which led me at the end to say, you know, the problems are not about kind of the algorithms. The problems are really in the data. So I, I left Microsoft with a couple of colleagues to start my first startup. We kind of spun out a co two companies out of that startup, the second of which got quickly acquired by Yahoo. And that's how I became Yahoo's first uh, chief data officer. In fact, first chief data officer anywhere. Yahoo had a culture for irrelevant irreverent titles uh, and they said, Hey, <laughs> chief data officer, that sounds funny. And a few people kind of laughed and I said, I really don't care. I'm here for two years to do my earnout." <laughs> of course, I ended up staying at Yahoo for, for five years and, and the title kind of was taken seriously by the world as, as it should have been. And then by the time I left Yahoo, almost five years later, it was, there were already like a few hundred uh, chief data officers. Finally, there was this chance to join Northeastern University when they approached me and said, hey, we raised money through donors and through central university funds. We want to create the top research institute in AI. And I thought, hey, this is the right time to kind of uh, figure out how to make academia relevant to AI again, which is a unique uh, chance. Most of AI was happening at the applications at companies and not really in academia who had had the brains and had the smarts and had the algorithms, but didn't have access to this data. And we utilized that solutioning to both prioritize a research agenda for our faculty and our researchers, as well as create experiential learning opportunities for, for our students in order to make sure they have a taste for what it takes to make AI work in the world which is something missing from the typical higher ed experience of a, you know, recent grad from data science or from AI. 
today every AI project pretty much turns into a data project first. Oh, interesting. Okay, so we can get into the the nuance between uh, data or data and AI in a bit. There's <laughs> one one thing that I really wanted to ask you, which is um, going right back to the beginning when you said you've been th- doing this for thirty years. I can imagine that over that time, you would have seen a lot of transition, a lot of evolution, a lot of innovation in the space, and kind of probably, I'm guessing, like waning interest, where it had its peaks of buzz and hype, and then it went back down. And so like you've seen these cycles before, right now we're at the peak of that hype cycle. So where do you think we are in the context of what you've seen in the last 30 years? And like, is this actually the turning point that everybody is saying that it is? Well, AI has had three, three peaks of hype before. Both peaks were followed by AI winters, where people basically were denying they had anything to do uh, with it. I witnessed the second AI winter as I was graduating with my PhD. It was a time when everybody was denying having anything to do with AI. However, machine learning, which, or learning algorithms in general, be it machine learning, data science, data mining, they kind of survived both winters very well. And in fact, What we're seeing now with the third hype of AI is entirely kind of empirical AI that's data-driven. And the reason for that is not because we came up with amazing AI algorithms or great advances in machine learning. We've had a few, but the majority I would attribute to the amazing growth in the data sets that are available. So what happened is people tried and thought they could create algorithms that mimic how humans do intelligence. That proved to be a much, much harder problem than initially thought. In fact, to date, we don't have a good definition of what is human intelligence, Uh, even what is common sense reasoning, which, you know, humans (laughs) do without much education. However, we have access to amazingly huge data sets. And these data sets offer an approach that says, forget about designing a solution kind of on a knowledge-based basis try to leverage the data to go from situation to proper answer or proper solution. And that has proven to be a very fruitful direction from an applications perspective. It doesn't necessarily give us much insight into how humans understand how humans do intelligence, but it gives us a tool that can give us answers frequently, sometimes quickly. And with the third wave with generative AI, if you're willing to spend a lot of money on building models and crunching through the data and kind of iterating over these deep networks to build these large language models, you can actually get to answers that look pretty interesting and pretty amazing in how they function, but they're becoming increasingly black boxish, impenetrable when it comes to trying to understand what the heck is the model doing? How is it reaching? You know, how does a black box with 180 billion parameters or a few trillion parameters like ChatGPT4, how does it get to this answer? Well, nobody understands. It's it's essentially, literally, we are living in the age of very flexible, very powerful autocomplete capabilities. And, you know, I'll, I'll quote my colleague, uh, Professor uh, Baron Wallace. He basically says, this is not prompt engineering. This is more like black art and incantations. So, you know, how do you come up with the right incantation to cause this mysterious box to spew out the right info versus the wrong info? 
That's the age we live in. It just says that autocomplete is a powerful capability, but it also is just a stochastic parrot. It's not something that understands what it's saying. It's trying its best to come up with the right autocomplete. It's really interesting because I think that it kind of goes back to maybe the misconceptions about how advanced AI or generative AI is right now versus what we, I think what we hope, hope it to be. Uh, versus just spewing out these autocomplete answers. I love that. And there, there is something actually that you wrote in a Forbes article, because I know that you write for them on the topic of AI quite regularly about, I think it's linked into the misconceptions about generative AI. You wrote that there's problems with bias in the training data. There's a lack of common sense, sometimes a lack of human common sense as well, to your point. There's inaccuracies and there's unpredictability in the responses. So you get varied responses. So is that, um, going back to what you were saying, is that because, you know, garbage in, garbage out, the data sets are not robust enough yet? Or is it the mechanisms that enable the data to be turned into a reliable, predictable, valuable response? Great question, Joe. And, and it's actually, the answer is it's both. So, so number one is there's a huge, huge dependency on curating the data and curation of the data. And, and you know, OpenAI doesn't talk about this much, but through their cycles, you know, at first they try to feed it data from the internet in general. Then they quickly realize, oh my God, there's so many erroneous articles, contradicting articles, misinformation, bad information, hate speech. So they went back and said, okay, we need to curate. And this is where a lot of money got spent. So they curated it down to about less than a terabyte of data that's carefully balanced and so forth. And then they said, well, what else could we use? Oh, yes, you know, Wikipedia is moderated, so it's less likely to contain false stuff. Let's use that. Oh, uh, when people publish articles, uh, scientific articles, they're unlikely to, to try to represent false information. So let's crunch through those articles. So what happened was an, an interesting and esoteric collection of data, about one terabyte. Um, by the way, we, we, you know, OpenAI stopped being open about it, but as of the last statistics, just training GPT-3, we remember there was 3.5 and 4.0, but GPT-3 on that less than terabyte worth of data and getting it to converge on the right autocomplete from, from the, its 175 billion weights, costs about $3 million of just energy utilization alone. Uh, of course, 3.5 and 4.0 are much more expensive. And that's just energy. That's not counting people trying to curate the data. It's not counting the cost of the equipment, all the GPUs and, and so forth. It's just the electricity needed just to get those trillion weights to converge. Now, many times they converge on something useful, but but there's two secrets to making the technology work, right? Number one is the data, which requires a lot of curation and balancing and making sure it's not biased and all of that. Very expensive and needs humans. And then the second step is kind of challenging the model that comes out. So whatever model comes out after you spend a few million dollars of energy on training, it's still not ready. It needs a lot of human challenging and corner cases and interventions. And they do that a lot. So the two secrets of making the technology work is you must have the right data and you must have the human intervention. And if you don't have those two, it is absolutely garbage in, garbage out. <laughs> 
And in fact, the tendency of these models, these stochastic parrots, is to spew out garbage out unless they're challenged and intervened with enough to catch these, these, uh, these issues. And by the way, we try to do this systematically, algorithmically, proved to be too hard. So you actually need an army of humans to continually challenge and say, oh, this doesn't make sense. Oh, this is wrong. Oh, this is not the right thing. This happens a lot. It happens in Google search, which is a different technology. It happens in open AI. It happens in all the, the groups that build these large language models. That's a little bit frightening, is it? It's really reliant on manual intervention of human beings. So just a s- sidestep for one one second here, and I guess going back to what you said about human intelligence and, and where potentially right now we're losing the ability to think critically and the space to be able to exercise critical thinking. Do you feel like that is something that's going to potentially create unhealthy models and unhealthy behaviors with our reliance on AI? Yeah, I mean, it's theoretically no, but practically yes. So what do I mean by that? So theoretically, what this technology allows you to do is potentially avoid a lot of repetitive, robotic, uninteresting work, right? Every time you have to write an article or you have to write a program or you have to do a presentation, you have to go through all these steps. Oh, I've been there before, seen this movie. Which slide do I grab? All of that. So in that sense, if you're willing to sit there and look at the output and go through it carefully, this could be an amazing tool that speeds up your work, Mm -hmm. uh, speeds up your ability to learn, speeds up your ability to produce and get to get feedback from others. However, the danger, as you point out so well, is what happens when you start trusting it and sleeping at the wheel, right? These things make errors and they make errors frequently. You know, Google and others like to refer to these as hallucinations. I don't like that terminology because it attributes too much credit and too much intelligence to the underlying model. That model has no understanding and no intelligence, no intent. It is an autocomplete model. So when they make these errors, you have to invest the time in looking through the output and catching where these errors are. Sometimes they're subtle, sometimes they're obvious, sometimes they're stupid. You're lucky if the error is stupid and you can catch it. You are in trouble if it all looks so good and so eloquent and you're amazed by the eloquence and you say, oh, this is ready. Yeah, let let it go. And then realize, hey, there's huge errors in here. There's made up stuff in there, right? Uh, Where this technology is particularly weak, it is not a retrieval technology. It is a summarization and statistical kind of at best autocomplete capability. So what does that mean? That means if you ask it to come up with a reference for something, well, it will do its best to come up with a reference, but a reference is something much more specific than kind of can't be approximated. You can't say it in three different ways. There's a title, there's an author, there's a date or authors. If you get any of them wrong, you got the reference wrong, right? And this is where it becomes very challenging for this technology. So. When a lawyer asks it to cite prior cases, it will try to invent some cases to support its brief. When you ask it for references supporting the argument made in this little paper, it will try to make up the references as best it could. And that statistical reconstruction 
is highly unlikely to be correct. So some of the work that needs to happen is basically going through and saying, hey, did it cite the right things? Can I check those? Mm. And, and that requires, that is where the human intervention comes in. And if you as a user are not prepared to put in that human intervention, then, you know, buyer beware, this is, you're very likely to be committing errors, to be committing plagiarism, to be committing all sorts of stuff without even knowing it. But just going back to the point around, you know, the everyday person using AI, and I have friends who are using it to build a diet plan and to, you know, uh, summarize podcast show notes and things like that. So, okay, seems seems pretty harmless. But I think that it trains in us a certain behavior, this behavior that we're already reliant on, where we're, we're leading into whatever is the easiest, whatever is the most convenient, whatever saves time without understanding the consequence of that, the expense of that on something else. And so the question that I have for you is, you know, when OpenAI not only created this, but gave it to the masses, opened it up for the everyday person who had no prior experience with generative AI or probably didn't even understand AI. Was that the right move for them to have done that in the context of what we know now? I mean, my answer is it's hard to kind of, you know, 2020 hindsight <laughs> is easy. So I, I, I don't want to be unfair. So was it right for them to do this? Well, it was useful in the sense that it brought into the consciousness of the masses that, hey, this AI stuff is advancing and these machines are able to do some amazing things. The part that was wrong is kind of not educating the users that, you know, errors can be included in here, whether you call them hallucinations or more accurately errors. Mm. And they are likely, not just could be. The errors could be errors of omission. They could be errors of invention. They could be errors of falsifying. There's no control over what these machines do. And whoever uses them, unfortunately, you know, gets awed by, hey, this, this sounds so eloquent. It can't be wrong. It's, it's so eloquent, it must be intelligent. Well, guess what? That eloquence is just a, a parroting, a repetition of stuff read from multiple papers or multiple sources. It shouldn't impress you. Look at the content. So you might think actually even using it for su to summarize a document is harmless. But guess what? It's very likely that it will summarize the document based on things that are commonly known and maybe skip the things that are new in that document. And if you rely on that summary, you're going to miss the contribution. But perhaps it might easily give you a negated contribution or a negative conclusion. And you wouldn't know it unless you actually are able to double check and say, hey, did the article really mean this, right? So a lot of these things, remember the technology is not doing this with, with ill intent. It's doing its best to mimic what it has seen in other documents and apply them to this prompt that you gave it, the, the document you wanted it to, sum, to summarize. And again, user beware, right? It might, that might be appropriate, if it's another routine document that's repeating what was said before, or it might be completely inappropriate if this document is actually disagreeing with the common wisdom, which is where usually the contributions are. So I worry a lot about this kind of sleeping at the wheel, trusting the technology because it sounds so eloquent in language terms, but it's not accurate technically and kind of gets you in trouble because you get lazy, you stop checking, you rely on it. 
And that's where the danger comes in. So I would say, no matter how trivial your application is, no matter how innocent the use is, even if it's like, give me a, give me a recipe for something, you need to make sure that it didn't include something poisonous or bad for you in that recipe, purely by mistake, purely by some chance, right? You know, so checking it and double checking it is absolutely important. Mm -hmm. The best users are the ones who say, okay, I get it. This is speeding me up. Now I need to do my work and check it and use my skills to correct it. Mm -hmm. And that's what we're finding is people who are skillful can leverage it and accelerate their work. People who are not so skillful can fall in the traps and are often better off not using it at all. It's an incredibly topical conversation right now in the foresight field. So I love that you hit on that point around what is inappropriate use of AI, because particularly, I think you summarized it so beautifully. There's a lot of conversation about, well, a lot of what we do is reading trend reports to, to simplify it. And so if we're doing analysis on analysis, so meta-analysis, and then we're feeding that meta-analysis into a tool that summarizes the analysis, you're almost just like filtering, like you're like you're watering down the depth of the research that was originally done. And to your point, which I think is the most critical part, our job is to find what is unfound. Our job is to look for the things that have been missed. And so... That's the, the the process of using AI is almost as critical as the you know the the capability of it. And that is and and, and Joe, that's a great point because that's exactly the failure of an autocomplete capability because mm. it's all built on repeating the past as opposed to discovering the novelty. I'm curious what your take is of um, some of the technologies that are now being built to supplement generative AI capability, um, and I'm thinking specifically of things like the humane. AI pin that's just been announced. So obviously something that you can wear. And, you know, I think that the the intention of the company, at least publicly, is so that you don't, so that we move away from the iPhone, so that we don't have to more manually interact with the technology. It's much more intuitive and it's it's much more kind of integrated into how we behave as human beings normally. But with that, it almost feels like where one one additional step removed from the interaction with the AI technology, with the ability to pressure test it, to sense check it, to question it. Do you feel like there's risk and opportunity in technologies like that? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, there are there, there, there are many tasks that could be safely automated. Dial a number based on the name of something or based on I'm trying to reach a business that does X or Y. That's useful, that's not hard. You can tolerate some errors once in a while, but generally speaking, it, it speeds you up, right? Give me a map to get from A to B where you can look at it visually. It, it makes a lot of sense, right? So, so the real question is, you know, how do we discern what are the safe applications and what are the potentially dangerous or harmful ones? The other part, is, and we don't know, we don't have good solutions for this. We know that the data collection, which is, it's all built on data, right? I mean, it's, it's all about the data that you fed into the model. You know, we know it can be biased. We know it can emphasize certain populations over others. We know it can emphasize certain types of humans over others. We know it can ignore certain populations that are not well represented. And that essentially results in kind of 
amplify and re, you know, kind of doing a self-fulfilling prophecy on uh, focusing on the wrong things or focusing on the bias. And that is very dangerous territory. The other part that worries me a lot with these tools is, remember the tools also generate content and they consume content. So now if the machine is generating much of the content and then this generated content is utilized by other machines and taken to be the truth, just because it's repeated often, gets us into a very potentially ugly cycle. So, right. you know, discerning what content is right from what content is dubious, from what content is erroneous. It's easy to do it when you're looking at a fiction. You know, you can quickly say, oh, okay, it's a picture of an astronaut in space uh, riding a horse. It doesn't make sense. It's fiction. It's okay. <laughs> but then, you know, if it's the Pope, you know, shown in a wild costume, or if it's, you know, Trump being arrested by cops around them in a fake video, you know, how do you tell the difference between reality and, and misuse and deep fakes and so forth? So this happens in, in content text, it happens in images, it happens in videos, and it's, it's a scary, scary future terrain because all of this might get consumed by more machines that don't even know that this is false. Mm. They just see it as published. Right. I think a lot of people probably don't even realize that that is the case, that it's it's a, yeah. almost like a self-perpetuating experiment that's feeding off of itself in the real world. And we're the guinea pigs of that. Um, Indeed. Yeah. So one, one last question for you then on that is, I guess, you know, these examples of the Pope in a parka and playing around with images of Donald Trump and the, the deep fakes it's a little bit fun. Like people are just having a little bit of fun with it. And there are a lot of programs now that um, a lot of artists are using, hopefully with, you know, ethics principles in play. Do you feel like AI also has untapped potential for us to become more creative? Well, definitely. I mean, this is the, the, the tools, I mean, our, our ability to accelerate the creative aspect. For example, one of the applications I, I'm in love with these days because it's a, it's a very good use of generative AI, is you know, Adobe Firefly, mm -hmm. which is part of Photoshop, where you, know, you could drag a part of an image and say, fill the rest like this. Or you can point at a place and say, you know, put in a cat that's smoking a cigarette here or something. <laughs> and you know, normally that's an activity that takes a long time. You can now do it in a nicely integrated way, very intuitively, et cetera. So it speeds you up. What I love about it, is they, Adobe built their own private model that was built on their own private, fully owned image library that they built over the last 30 years. And that enabled them to completely indemnify the user from any liability when it comes to copyright infringement and all of that, because the ownership is clear. Mm. And they integrated it in a nice, intuitive way in a tool that's used by millions, tens of millions of people that's a great example of using the technology in a setting where somebody thought through, you know, what are the rights, what are the ownerships, and the user is driving, and, and the user is, the user in this case is a bit sophisticated. It's somebody who is potentially a graphic artist or a user who understands the image they're editing, and they can immediately say, oh, no, no, this is wrong, or this is bad, or this is ugly, or, or this is unacceptable, or this is immoral, right? And they can catch it and nip it in the bud. Mm. 
that is a very nice example of a good application. So no doubt in my mind that it will accelerate our ability to create, to have people respond, to have people edit, but equally well, I, I mean, or, or equally as much, I worry about the use of that technology by the bad guys, the people who are trying to misinform, the people who are trying to create these things. That, you know, we might say that, uh, you know, the, 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 the Pope uh, sporting a parka is, is a fun thing. There was a good community of people at first who were confused. They didn't know this was mm. done in fun or in jest. The intent of the uh, videos of the arrest with the cops around Trump, initially it wasn't intended as a joke. It was intended to kind of, you know, get people riled up. So again, you know, it's, it's difficult when it's mapped to the real world and it's hard to distinguish it. You know, how do you trust any video you see? How do you trust any image you see? How do you trust any text you see written in the name of somebody? Those are very scary things. And you, you can, you can, you know, you can easily create a prompt that says, Hey, you know, say this statement in the voice of Joe using Joe's style and accent and, and make it sound like it's angry or happy. Mm. I mean, my God, imagine how. Yeah. This could be badly used against you personally, against you publicly. That yeah. is bad stuff. Yeah. I mean, they someone, not that they would, because I'm not that interesting, but someone could create a podcast of Joe interviewing Hitler and agreeing with everything that he says. I mean, what's to say yeah. that, you know, some of these things that feel disconnected from us, like, oh, it's a celebrity or, oh, it's a politician, ha ha. What if it, they're used against people that you care about and that you know? Exactly. Mm. And, and that's where the real problems are. That's where, you know, my colleague, Ricardo Baeza Yates, he, he got contacted by a Portuguese friend, uh, not Portuguese, sorry, Brazilian, uh, saying, hey, th there's a, a chat GPT 3.5 is saying you are dead, right? And <laughs> okay. that you died in 2021. And it was funny because, he, you know, he went to it, looked at his bio in Spanish, his bio in Portuguese, and found that there were errors. Now, for somebody who knows Ricardo really well, they, they would know these are errors. For the general reader, heck, you know, they wouldn't know if it said he graduated from the wrong university or worked at the wrong place. They would take that as fact because the bio sounds real, right? Mm -hmm. Well, it's not. And it turns out the bio was filled with errors. And in fact, he wasn't dead. GPT-4 in the end kind of corrected the error that he was dead, but kept many other errors. Uh, going on. And and by the way, it's really interesting why it thought he was dead. Because there was somebody called Ricardo Baeza, who happened to be an army figure that died in 2021 out of cancer, has nothing to do with Ricardo Baeza Yates. But look at this. Ricardo Baeza very likely will expand through autocomplete to Ricardo Baeza Yates. And then it augments this other information. Autocomplete gone nuts. <laughs> right, right. And going back to the point that you were making, it's not that the AI is intentionally doing this or that it has ill will towards anybody or that necessarily it's stupid. It is just trained on the way that we have set it up and the data that's inside of it. It's it's doing its best to do an autocomplete based on whatever prompt you wrote. And my other favorite, you know, the, the, the fact that Different prompts will give you, even though they semantically mean the same things, will give you different outputs. 
should give you pause and should make you worry. Hey, you know, and, and like my, you know, my colleague Byron Wallace says, you know, these are more like incantations than, you know, prompt engineering. We really don't understand what's going on inside that black box. Well, I think that uh, for the listeners, at least, you have given us a lot of clarity into that black box. I do have one last question for you. So what is the go-to that you have when you're trying to get yourself outside of the bubble that you normally operate in and just expose yourself to different ways of thinking? Uh, for, for me, it's, it's typically kind of uh, looking at a situation and saying, you know, I have my own biases, you know, I'm, I'm trained as an engineer and I'm, I'm a researcher and I'm, a, you know, I have my own business angle. Looking at it differently and saying, you know, how could this affect the lives of, you know, people I normally don't think about? How would people struggle in trying to understand what this technology is doing? And that typically leads me into uh, interesting spaces, considering aspects that I haven't thought about. Uh, the, the, the social impact, the potential ethical issues, a lot of these things that I don't do day to day that actually are healthy to kind of force ourselves to, to look towards. So typically it's kind of trying to ask the question from, from what I think is, is the other. And then the most interesting one is talking to people. Like to me, my best go-to is asking people some questions where I think I know the answer. And then looking at what they're saying and trying to understand, well, why are they saying something that is different than the answer I'm looking for? And that typically opens my eyes to a completely different point of view. Yeah. And it's great that you're open to being pressure tested in that way as well. Yeah. No. So go outside and talk to people. That is an <laughs> amazing tool. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Definitely. Well, Osama, thank you so much. This was a wonderful conversation. I learned a lot and made me think about the topic in a, in a really different way. So thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you, Joe, and uh, best of luck. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, review, or share the show, and I will see you next time. Until then, keep looking outside. Mm-hmm.